Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for October 18th, 2017. On today's show, we're going to be talking about a bunch of news, including the Sicario sequel, a Rogue One character returns for Star Wars Rebels, the problem with modern movies, according to David Fincher, and the possibility of a Dark Tower sequel. Uh, In the spoiler room at the end of this podcast, we'll be talking about a new Stranger Things fan theory that may predict what we're about to see in Stranger Things Two, the sequel to Stranger Things. Uh, and before that, we'll get to the mailbag uh, responding to our mailbag from yesterday. I'm Peter Soda, and joining me on today's podcast is Slash Film writer Ben Pearson. Hey, what's up? And Slash Film writer Chris Evangelista. Hello. Okay, guys, I, I, I scored tickets to Harry Potter and the Cursed Child in New York. I'm going there in March. I've spent... Uh, more money than I think I've ever spent on one single day of entertainment. Uh, and, you know, that that's pretty hard considering, you know, going to theme parks and, and whatnot. Yeah. But just for these tickets alone, it's nearing the $1,000 range for, you know, two two tickets. Because it's actually two parts. So we're seeing two separate plays in one day, which is going to wow. be, yeah. Uh, pretty insane. Anyways, I just wanted to mention that the the the, the front of this, not that we're doing a, a, a water uh, cooler segment. Uh, yesterday on the uh, in the mailbag, we talked a little bit about do, does box office have any indicator on the quality of a film? And I think uh, most of us agreed that it didn't. Or no, we I think we all agreed that it didn't. Yeah. Uh, but uh, I think HT was strongly in, in the camp that no one uses box office to determine if they want to go see a movie. Uh, and I think you were kind of in the middle of me and her, and I, I was like, I think people do. Uh, <laughs> John D. has ridden in. He he works at a mall theater, which he says gets a lot of the general public audience. And he wrote in, quote, I can tell you that I get asked all shift, every shift, What's the most popular movie? And if I recommend something, the first thing they ask is, quote, are a lot of people seeing it? I'll, if my answer is no, they'll reply 90% of the time, screw, screw it. 
It must not be good then. So yes, the general public is, in my experience, does uh, indeed decide if there's going to see a movie based on its popularity. Going back to your conversation last week, the other question I get asked a lot is, quote, do you have the Rotten Tomato scores printed? We don't. Uh, people are becoming much more aware of Rotten Tomato scores. And I can tell you how many refunds I gave to people who walked out of mother screaming at me that the Rotten Tomatoes lied. Uh, but when I was in college, I managed a movie theater that played mostly indie and foreign movies, and none of these questions arose. So that's from John D., uh, who wrote in to, slash, uh, to Peter at SlashFilm.com. You can write in with your questions. Please leave your name and general geographic location in case we mention it on the air. Uh, any thoughts on this, guys? Like, Is this surprising that that both people are asking for writing to, Rotten Tomato scores and you know, asking what movies are doing well at the box office at the, box, you know, at the actual theater box office? I talked about this a lot yesterday. I'm interested to hear Chris's thoughts. Uh, I gotta say, this is uh, depressing. I, I never thought, <laughs> I never thought it would get this bad, but uh, I guess it is. That I guess I, I would say I am surprised that this many people are. I mean, I don't know how many people he's talking about. He says you know ninety percent of the time, but he's not saying how many people that is. But that is a, a, a an alarming statistic. I didn't. I, I mean, I know a lot of like older theater goers rely on reviews like there's been a lot of times where i've been in a, in a movie and the i've i've heard uh like older people uh arguing that oh it got great reviews but i'm not enjoying the movie so i mean maybe maybe on that level i i knew about it but i don't know is this widespread you, you know it's a weird a weird thing about rotten tomatoes it's when you talk to the general public about film criticism and film critics and reviews it seems like a lot of them have this this disdain for critics and like you know i don't like the same things critics like and like that kind of like attitude but yet they you know seem to flock to this rotten tomato score which is based on the opinions of critics which is (laughs) is strange I, i would say this uh you know when i go to when I go to restaurants, I often, you know, sit down and I, I ask the waiter, you know, what is the best thing here? It's not the most popular. I don't ask for the most popular. But I ask, what is the best thing here? And, and more times than not, I'll order that, even if it's something I don't think sounds good. Because, you know, I trust the people that are around the food more often than, you know, me who have is coming to, into this restaurant for the first time ever. Uh, but I think that's different than asking, you know, someone at the at the ticket uh, seller booth, you know, what is the most popular thing here? <laughs> you know, I, I'd rather see the best thing than the most popular thing. Um, so I don't know. Uh, I'm, I'm sure m- many of you will write in ab- on this topic. Uh, and that's Peter at slash Let's get into the news though, guys. Um, the Sicario sequel, uh, is, uh, w- we're learning more about that. Ben, you wrote this article for slash What do we know? Yes, the sequel to Sicario, which uh, Denis Villeneuve directed in 2015. It's this really awesome suspense action movie. If you've not seen it, it's really great. You should definitely check it out. Uh, The sequel is called Soldado, and uh, filming has already wrapped on that, but it doesn't come out until next summer. Uh, But Josh Brolin is reprising his role from the first movie, and Benicio Del Toro is coming back as well. Emily Blunt, who started the first film, is not going to be coming back for Soldado, but it's going to center around 
the uh, the male characters from the first movie. Uh, and Josh Brolin was recently asked, you know, how the the second movie uh, turned out since he just wrapped shooting on it. He basically compared it to how he felt when he was making the first film, which is when he was making Sicario, he thought that movie was only going to be okay, but it turned out to be, in his words, a really fucking good movie. Uh, I tend to agree with that. I love that movie. Uh, and he uh, was asked for like a more direct comparison. You know, what are, what are we going to be expecting with Soldado? And he said, quote, I think it's just more severe, man, all the way around. I think the characters are more severe. I think the movie is more severe. I think it's just much bigger. It's just a bigger scope film. Like I said, when I saw it, it was like Sicario felt like a small movie to me, even though it was a very intimate movie. I've always said I don't understand why bigger movies can't be just as intimate, if not more intimate. Why do they have to be less emotional? I think Soldado is a perfect example of that. I think it's extremely emotional. I think it's extremely tense, and it deals with similar subject matter. So uh, that's his quote on that. I am definitely looking forward to this film, even though uh, Denis Villeneuve is not directing it. Uh, uh, an Italian filmmaker named Stefano Solima has stepped in to direct this sequel. But um, if it's, it's more intense and more emotional and, and sort of, um, yeah, like, like a bigger scope than Sicario, I can't even really wrap my head around what that's going to mean. <laughs> Yeah, and this this director Stefano has done a bunch of films I've never seen. ACAB and Sabura. Uh, Chris, are those films you've seen? No, I'm I'm not familiar with those. Yeah, it, it, for for some reason I feel like Sicario was elevated and was great because of Denis. And I don't know this. This is an unknown quantity of filmmaker. I, I'm still going into it. and I'm going to see it, but I'm less excited about it. Uh, you know, without. Denis being involved as director, although, you know, Brolin is saying all the right things. And, uh, you know, this wasn't intentional, but this is a great lead in to the David Fincher piece of news, which is coming at the end of our news segment. So stay tuned for that. Um, But let's move on from that to more sequels, uh, because everybody wants to know about sequels. Uh, Idris Elba still believes that a Dark Tower sequel might happen. Chris, what do we know about this? Right. So the Dark Tower, as everyone knows at this point, was not good and it did not do well at the box office. It took in a little more than 100 million worldwide. Uh, it's got about 15 percent on Rotten Tomatoes, going back to Rotten Tomatoes again. So uh, it seemed after that film came out and after everyone was disappointed in it, it seemed inevitable that there would not be a bunch of sequels of this film, even though it was originally planned as the first in a whole series of films, much like it's a series of books. And uh, Idris Elba is saying basically that he'd prefer to do another Dark Tower movie, exploring more of the character. And he said, there's definitely talks to try and do another one. So that's basically, that's a direct quote from him. There's definitely talks. So I don't know how serious those talks are. I don't know how far they'll get. I mean, maybe if the film surprisingly does huge on Blu-ray, which I doubt it will, but that might change things. But beyond that, I would not be surprised if we don't get another Dark Tower movie. You know, uh, one thing that's surprising about Dark Tower, and I'm, I'm not sure if a lot of people know this, because this film was marketed as a big budget film, but it was made for only $60 million. Or supposedly, who knows? We, we we don't know budgets, but that's what the estimated budget of the movie is: sixty million dollars. Um, so, at that budget, 
it, it, it's it's around it's with home video and with television rights it's around breaking even i wouldn't consider that a success in any way but no. uh it is possible for them to do sequels it's just uh will they and uh does and is is there an appetite for more dark tower ben do you have any thoughts on this yeah, I mean, that's the question, right? Is like the big problem with the first Dark Tower movie was that it tried to water down all of this, you know, dense mythology and condense it into one movie and uh, it's sort of uh, appeal to the broadest possible demographic. But in doing that, it uh, alienated pretty much everyone because like nobody, you know, it it sanded the ev- the edges off so dramatically that there was nothing left. It's just a circle of a movie. There, it's just, there's just nothing there. So uh, the idea of making a sequel, it, it's not like the people who saw the film um, are going to be excited about that because there's nothing to get excited about. That movie was just such a, a nothing film. And it's like the Stephen King fans have probably learned their lesson after watching the first movie. So there may be some, you know, masochists out there who have to put themselves through the experience of seeing a sequel just because, you know, they're completists or just to, to see for themselves, um, you know, whether there's a, a market improvement there. But I just can't imagine the audience showing up again or a bigger audience. You know, a lot of times with sequels, it's like they hope that the DVD market and all that stuff will uh will reach a larger audience over time so that when the sequel comes out, more people will go out and see it in the theaters. But I just don't see that being the case for this. And the person you're talking about is sitting on the line right here. It's, Chris is a, a huge fan of Stephen King, right, Chris? Oh, oh, yes. Very big. So if they do make a Dark Tower sequel, would you go see it if you had <sighs> heard Buzz that it is is more of the same? Oh, I mean, I'd probably have to see it for work, but... <laughs> Uh, I wouldn't. I wouldn't be, you know, jumping for joy to go see it. So yeah, if, especially if it's more of the same. I mean, and even if it wasn't, I probably would still be skeptical. If you know, early Buzz said, "Oh, they they changed stuff and they made it better," I'd still be uh, very skeptical, especially after that first film. Yeah. See, yeah. we we would have to make you go see it to to add it to your complete ranking of all the Stephen King adaptations, which we've published right. on the sites. Um, but moving on. Uh, one of the uh, one of the characters in Rogue One, a Star Wars story, was Saw Gerrera. He has appeared in uh, the animated series Star Wars Rebels, and he will again make a return appearance on this last and uh, last this final season of Star Wars Rebels. Uh, ben, what do we know? Yes, Saw Gerrera, the militant extremist character played by Forrest Whitaker in Rogue One, showed up on an episode of Star Wars Rebels earlier this year called Ghosts of Geonosis, and that character is now coming back in a two-part episode called In the Name of the Rebellion, which airs this coming Monday, October 23rd. So uh, Forrest Whitaker is coming back to do the voice of that, and um, there's a clip in the article that we wrote uh, on Slash Film that you can watch of uh, a hologram of Saw, you know, talking to uh, some rebellion people, Mon Mothma and, and some others. Um, and there's like a bunch of photos and stuff that have come out of this. I have not watched Star Wars Rebels, so I, have, I can't really add too much to this conversation. But it's, uh, you know, another way for them to loop this character back in to the larger uh, mythos. And I know Kathleen Kennedy said um, 
around the time that Rogue One came out that she actually wanted Saw Gerrera to be in that movie more, but they ended up having to cut some of his appearance down for timing and stuff like that. So she wants to sort of um, explore that character further in the future. So this looks like uh, one way to do that as uh, Star Wars Rebels comes to an end. Yeah, and this is the last uh, season, or yeah, last season of Star Wars Rebels. Uh, they're getting close to the period of where Rogue One and you know A New Hope is coming in. Uh, you know, by the end of the season, we assume that you know the Jedi must die, and uh, you, you, you know we we know where this ends up. So they're they're answering a lot of questions. We, we've had some other stories on the site from uh, showrunner Dave Filoni, producer, writer. Uh, director um, talking about how they're going to be answering a lot of questions and how this season is a lot more serialized than than previous seasons, which is awesome because this series is a great series when when it does that kind of uh, more developed storytelling and it's not these like you know episodes that are kind of like one shots. That's just kind of like a. You know, it's it's a fun character episode, but it really doesn't further along the plot of this of this epic series. Um, mm-hmm. I'm really enjoying it. I recommend it, but uh, there is a lot of those filler episodes, which is unfortunate, and that's I think one of the reasons why I didn't uh, kind of invest myself in the Clone Wars, which was also by Filoni. Um, but they're doing some really great work. I saw the last two episodes, which aired this past week, which was a two parter, and. Uh, I don't know, some really powerful Star Wars storytelling. Uh, I highly recommend uh, if, if anybody wants to uh, check this out, I'm sure you could get the last three seasons pretty cheap on like iTunes or something. Um, yeah. So moving on, uh, David Fincher's new show, Mindhunter, um, is on Netflix. I've been watching it. I'm like three episodes in. Chris has watched the whole series and did a spoiler review on the site, um, which I have not read because I'm not, I've not gotten up to that point yet. Uh, but David Fincher is doing press, which is rare for him. And, uh, in one of the press, he is explaining the problem with modern movies. Chris, what do we, what is he saying is the problem with, uh, modern cinema? Right. So David Fincher did an interview with uh, Financial Times, and he basically ran down what he thinks. Sorry about that. Sorry, my Alexa turned on. Sorry about that. I wonder what Alexa thought you were trying to say that. I don't know. Okay, let's go. So what does David Fincher think is wrong with modern cinema? Right. So in an interview with Financial Times, David Fincher says, what he thinks is wrong with cinema today is there are no mid-level movies anymore. Everything is like a big studio tentpole. Everything's a superhero movie. Everything's a big action movie. And he says, uh, you know, he holds up all the president's men as a great older example of where he says everything is character in that movie. Now movies are about saving the world from destruction there aren't a lot of scenes in movies, even the ones I get to make, where anyone gets to muse about the why. So he's basically just saying everything now is more driven towards being bigger and louder. And there's not really a lot of room anymore for studio movies that are, you know, again, middle grade. They're about normal people, I guess. I mean, you know, there are still movies like that, but they're made by smaller independent uh, companies. You know, you're not going to get like a big studio movie like that anymore. Well, it's also it's going over to television, like what you're seeing 
what David Fincher is doing with Mindhunter is what I think that that middle grade movie would have been, you know, 10, 15 years ago, right? Right, exactly. He says that, too, in the interview, too. He says, I see Netflix as people who are bold enough and interested enough to build a playground between film and television. So, yeah, again, Netflix is like an op- a place that's giving him a chance to do what he wants to do. And even with Mindhunter, he originally pitched that to HBO and HBO turned it down. So even they, who for a while were, you know, at the forefront of these sorts of dramas, even they didn't go for this. But Netflix apparently did. You know, personally, I mean, I see this point of view and I think other other filmmakers have expressed this point of view elsewhere. Um, But personally, I see this as like a a good thing because I think – that those kind of mid-level dramas work better uh, when they're not constrained to, you know, 90 minutes or 100 minutes or 120 minutes. Like, they work better as these kind of long-form things. Like, I can't imagine, you know, watching Mindhunter as a, as a movie. Um, I can't imagine, you know, experiencing a lot of the, the shows that I'm watching on television. I, I wouldn't want to see even, even something like Stranger Things, which does have, you know, kind of world at stakes kind of bits. Like, I I love being able to, you know, live in that world. And like, it's not it, it doesn't feel like it needs to be rushed. And it feels like we can have some time with these characters and these situations and these problems. And, you know, the, the, you, we can you know, suck it all in. Do you know what I mean? Like, right. Yeah. Ben, do you have any thoughts on this? Um, I think that's a mentality that has only come up, you know, sort of with the rise of Netflix. I feel like when I was a kid and I would hear about a cool story, I would automatically go to the thought of, wow, I can't wait until this gets turned into a movie or I would love to see this as a movie, not, oh, I can't wait until this gets adapted for TV. But I, I think you're right. I think there's, um, especially for stuff that's more character centric and is not, you know, as uh, concentrated on spectacle and stuff like that. I I typically tend to walk out of a movie thinking, man, I would love to spend more time with those characters. And and you know, TV shows have proven to be a really great way of doing that. Uh, you know, high quality stuff like that. You know, over the past few years. So I think that's a that's a new mentality or relatively speaking, but, um, but yeah, it seems to be sort of where we are right now. Um, okay. Right now, guys, we have finished the news. We're going to go to the spoiler room to talk about stranger things. So if you have not seen stranger things season one, you could, uh, you know, clock out now. And also, you know, this is speculation on stranger things season two or stranger things two, as they're calling it. Um, if you do not want to, uh, you know, immerse yourself in some speculative theories, some fan theories on what might happen in the second season. We don't know anything. We're going based on, you know, just the trailers and these fan theories. You know, it's not like we are, are intentionally trying to spoil anything. So uh, if you want to, if you want to dive in with us and, you know, just theorize, um, join us. Um, if not, uh, we will see you tomorrow. Okay, so let's go into the spoiler room. Uh, Stranger Things, there's this new theory out that basically speculates how season one of the show could have set up and explained and predicted everything that's going to happen in Stranger Things season two. Ben, you wrote this up for the site. Tell us about this theory. 
Yes. So if you recall, the eighth and final episode of season one of Stranger Things ends with the uh, the gang of kids getting together and playing Dungeons and Dragons again. And they, instead of uh, dealing with the Demogorgon as they have been sort of throughout the whole season, the sort of big bad in their fictional Dungeons and Dragons game is this creature called the Thessal Hydra, which is a multi-headed creature. And uh the theory of, that has sort of, uh, you know, gained prominence in the past few days, uh, sort of on the back of the new trailer. There's a lot of imagery in the new trailer that seems to sort of align with this, this theory. So I'll talk about that in a second. But the theory is basically that the Dungeons and Dragons game that the kids play in that episode is predicting the events of season two. So what happens is they uh, encounter the Thessal Hydra. And uh, Will Byers, his character, has the opportunity to fireball the creature in order to take it out. And he sort of looks to his friends for approval, makes that decision, and rolls the correct number in order to, you know, use this fireball spell on this creature. And that ends up um, winning the day, basically. And there are a couple of sort of lingering questions that they the kids have in the game they're like oh man that campaign was too short what about the lost knight what about the proud princess what about those weird flowers in the cave so at the time when i was watching it i was just thinking that that was sort of a clever commentary by the duffer brothers the creators of the show about how tv shows often don't necessarily resolve every single plot point that they introduce over the course of a season but it could be foreshadowing for uh characters or sort of, um, you know, metaphorical titles that could be applied to uh, characters or situations as we move forward into the upcoming second season. So, um, And it should be mentioned that pre uh, earlier on in that season, they did set up the Demigorgon and how the Demigorgon was going to be de- uh, defeated in a game of D&D. So this isn't yes. like, this isn't unprecedented in the series. Right. Yeah, and that's how the entire concept of the Upside Down came about, is Eleven is in there with them playing Dungeons & Dragons, and she flips the board over and puts the Demogorgon there, and and that's how they sort of come up with that term. So um, so as far as the Thessal Hydra itself goes, uh, in Greek mythology, the Hydra is a multi-headed creature that Hercules fights, and he can't defeat it alone so this is a key point every time he slices off one of the creature's heads two more grow back in its place and eventually hercules's nephew comes up with the way to defeat this thing which is hercules slices off the head and then the nephew uh burns the stumps before another head can grow back so that's how they ultimately end up um sort of taking this thing down and it illustrates like the power of teamwork and and um uh, you know, the importance of that, which I think are themes that Stranger Things has um, has hit on before and will likely use again. Um, and we definitely so, see that shot in the trailer with all of them kind of in the room fighting at once in, in the upside down. Yeah, kind of it kind of brings to mind that when you when, when you say that. Yeah. And, and so um, in Dungeons and Dragons mythology, the Thessal Hydra is slightly different from the Hydra, but it, it it's basically the same thing. It's also a multi-headed creature, and this one proliferates by infecting hosts with larvae or larvae, which is how how uh, you know if you remember from the end of season one, 
Will Byers, basically, who spent the whole season in the Upside Down, spits up this sort of worm creature. So he's been infected. And as we've seen in the trailers, he's sort of seeing these visions of the Upside Down. He's, you know, the worlds are the the lines are blurring between his realities. Um, the idea that the Thessal Hydra is also uh in Dungeons and Dragons world, it is designed within that world. It doesn't normally exist. Um, so that could pace, possibly hint at the idea that Martin Brenner and some of the guys at the Department of Energy, the the villain, the human villains of Stranger Things might have engineered this thing somehow. We're, you know, we're very much in the dark on what the Upside Down is, whether this world was created by humans or whether it's something that we're just tapping into. A lot of unanswered questions there. So that could be, you know, this, this creature could be uh, the result of an experiment or something by these guys. And um, if you remember from the trailers for season two, there's this multi-tentacled thing in the sky, and that is being referred to as the shadow monster in this season. And the theory is that that is the Thessal Hydra. Um, the uh, fact that it's in mythology is destroyed by fire sort of burning the stumps. There's a lot of imagery in the new trailers of um, Sheriff Hopper and other people, you know, dressed up in hazmat suits with like flamethrowers and stuff like that. So like theoretically, maybe he uses those flamethrowers to, uh, you know, seal off the, the stumps of these heads or these tentacles or whatever as they come around. Um, so that's a lot of it. And then the, the other things are those sort of unanswered questions that I mentioned before. The lost knight, you know, maybe that's Eleven. Maybe she's lost in the Upside Down. Maybe she's, uh, you know, she, she's been sort of imbued with these powers to defeat her enemies. Maybe it's Hopper who's lost in his... Uh, attempts to find meaning in the world what what if it's barb what if she's still alive (laughs) i guarantee there are people who think that but that is uh that is definitely wrong um (laughs) the proud princess that might be 11 too but i i hope that character or that sort of nickname goes to max the new female character um just because i feel like that's a sort of a weird thing for 11 to have and then the flowers in the cave, the other reference that is made in this video, uh, that very well could be the eggs that Hopper found in the Upside Down, or it might have something to do with uh, Dustin holding a bouquet of flowers that we saw in the, su- the season two trailer, and then the kids also are going through this tunnel that looks very much like a cave that presumably transports you from the regular world to the upside down world. So th- there's a lot of uh, imagery there that you can sort of latch onto and, and sort of find meaning in as we wait for the uh, season two premiere to come around. But um, what do you guys think about this? Um, I just want to say, I, I kind of love that they, if this is, if this theory does pan out to be true, um, I kind of love that they put this in season one and kind of hit it in there, kind of like, you know, uh, Edgar Wright has done a couple times with his Easter eggs of like mm-hmm. hiding the movie plot early on and, and explaining everything. Um, y- you, you usually get like a filmmaker when, you know, a, a, a series is renewed, say, you know, coming on and be like, oh, yeah, we have this grand plan, you know, all this stuff. And it ends up after the fact not being that true. And it seems to me that the Duffer Brothers have really thought about this when they were going through season one, that they had some plans of what would be next, which uh, to me is exciting because I don't want to see someone just, you know, do something and not know, and put themselves in like kind of a corner and not know where they're going to go next with it. I want there to be a grand plan, which I've talked about previously on, on this podcast. And it seems like they have 
somewhat of a grand plan. Like if this turns out to be true, it's it's it shows. You know, it's it's them uh, kind of putting it out there. Chris, yeah. Any thoughts on this? Uh, I, I agree. I, I love the idea that maybe they did plan this that extremely. I also love the idea that this show has just inspired that sort of fan reaction where people are able to actually sort of like dissect clues like that. It, it sort of reminds me of like the last time I remember a show inspiring that much, it was like lost, which obviously didn't turn out that well in the end, but for a long time it was going really well. And uh, I kind of love that this show is inspiring that at the same time, I hope when season three rolls around, I, I hope at the end of season two, they're not like, all right, let's play Dungeons and Dragons again. And they're setting, <laughs> like, I, I hope they, they don't just keep setting it up the same way because that's going to uh, get a little tiring after a while. <laughs> yeah, I think they're going to have to evolve. I, I, I've already suggested on this podcast that it would be great if they pulled an it and, you know, fast forward, you know, 10, 20 years into the future and did like, you know, flashback, flash forward, which I guess is kind of like lost too, in a way. Um, yeah. Uh, kind of format. I think that would be kind of cool to shake it up um, because who knows where they're going to go. That we, we know that they, what, they have like four seasons supposedly planned out, four or five seasons, something like that. Yeah, um, I think so. Yeah. Uh, ben, any, so there, any last thoughts on this? Yeah, there are a couple, a couple more little pieces of evidence here that I thought were worth mentioning. So in that Dungeons & Dragons game from the eighth episode of season one, uh, Mike Wheeler, who is the dungeon master, describes um, the... Uh, the Thessal Hydra dying and it says he reaches out its clawed hand for you one last time and that sort of uh, corresponds with imagery that we've seen in the new trailer of what looks to be a tentacled hand of the Thessal Hydra sort of reaching toward uh, you know out across a field toward a human figure we're not really sure who it is it might be Will um, so that sort of you know sort of uh, aligns and goes along with this and then also we see the shot of the kids wheeling these barrels through a field like a junkyard area theoretically they're filled with oil which could you know sort of be uh used to ignite a fire which may end up you know coming into play with the stumps and all of that kind of stuff and then one more thing that i thought about when i was writing my um trailer breakdown of the most recent stranger things 2 trailer uh we've seen in the previous trailers this thessal hydra floating in the sky with red lightning all around it right but yeah. in the most recent trailer that red lightning is gone it's all blue now it's all very you know uh, the color palette has completely changed around this creature so i'm wondering if there are actually two of these things out there one sort of an evil one and then one that might be more benevolent and we haven't really seen anything that would indicate that yet other than just that that color shift between these trailers but that would be sort of a fascinating thing because it it would paint the upside down as a place that's not just full of evil things that good things could be mixed in there as well so i don't know just something something to think about that 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 is an interesting theory i i i I'm so curious to where they're taking this. When does Stranger Things season two premiere? Do- uh, it is October 27th, so not very long at all. So we only have to wait like another nine days or something. Yeah, but it's it's going to be a long nine days. Um, <laughs> uh, w- w- when Stranger Things two comes out, 
how are you guys planning to to do it? Are you planning on staying up midnight on that Thursday night, or I'm assuming it's a Thursday night, and binge watching it into the morning, or uh, are you planning on watching it over that weekend? How, how are you? What are your plans, Chris? What are you gonna do? I would like to stay up, but my wife wants to see it, so I'll probably have to wait for her <laughs> to be a you know to be supportive and I'll wait for her and probably Friday night when she comes home from work, we'll probably binge it all through the weekend. I think I'm going to do the exact same thing. Yeah. I think that's probably the way to go. Although (laughs) not to bring spoilers back into this conversation (laughs) and from the guy that says that spoilers don't spoil anything, but I'm kind of a bit worried that people are going to be assholes and go online and, you know, uh, be talking about it in my feeds and stuff that Friday. And uh, I know it won't ruin it for me, but, uh, I don't know. I Peter, I'm, I'm sensing a, a trend here. You, you seem to be always coming with the uh, – for the guy who says spoilers don't matter, but this kind of thing. You know, I, I don't know. There might be something to it. I know. I know. I know. Uh, <laughs> I just think um, – you know, sometimes we go to these press screenings and uh, on the screen, instead of like those movie ads that are really annoying, they'll have the trailer playing, you know, over and over and over again. And uh, as much as I love trailers and I love to defend trailers, I don't need to be watching the trailer over and over and over again minutes before I see the movie. <laughs> and that's kind of the way I feel about this is if I'm going to watch Stranger Things that weekend, you know, I don't need to be to have these, you know, gifts of people dying in my feed and whatever. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like, I don't know. I, I feel like there's a difference between. <laughs> All right, Peter, just keep telling yourself. that. <laughs> <laughs> um, OK, guys, uh, I think it's time to call it a day. Chris, where can we find more of your work online? Uh, I am at SlashFilm.com and you can find me on Twitter at C Evangelista 413. Uh, ben, what about you? And you can find me writing every day at Slash Film as well, and you can find me on Twitter at Ben Pears. You can find me at Slash Film. You can find all these articles at SlashFilm.com. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Slash Film. Uh, this podcast is published every weekday on iTunes, Google Play, Overcast, all the popular podcast apps, and uh, SlashFilm.com, which we have a new mobile website, which I hope you check out and uh, take it for a spin. We're still working out the kinks, but we've gotten a lot of great feedback thus far. Um, if you like this pod- podcast, please go to iTunes, give us a rating, give us a review, tell your friends about this on social media. That all helps us out quite a bit, and uh, we will see you tomorrow.